You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. Cities and Tomorrow's Society. My name's Matt Peacock. I'm the Group Communications Director at Vodafone. And our our topic for this afternoon is what matters in cities. So what is it that unites us, that divides us? What is it that transforms lives about cities? What ruins lives in cities? Um, And what will shape the metropolis and the megatropolis of the future? Um, Now, before we begin, and because we've had quite a long afternoon already, just a bit of audience participation, please. I want a show of hands... Put your hand up if you live in an inner city area or the suburb of a major city. So, show of hands. Right, that's the large majority of the room. Uh, Keep your hands up. Sorry, keep your hands up. (laughs) Now, put your hand down if you are closer to a farm than the city centre. So, if you're in the suburbs. And I mean a real farm, by the way. You know, surly 1950s clothing. So, hands down if you live closer to a farm than the city centre. So, in other words, hands down if you're in a suburb. Okay, I would say that's probably three-fifths of the room, maybe a bit more. You are hardcore city dwellers. That's interesting. Um, I'm quite surprised by that. I'd assume that we'd have more people living further out. That's very interesting. So, what does the future lie for all of you who live in the cities? Um, Let's get some views from our panel, uh, beginning with Mark Vlessing, who is the co-founder and the chief executive of Pocket, a private developer of affordable housing sold to people on low and um, to moderate incomes. An entrepreneur and investor, Marx had a varied career in business and corporate finance, including running London's largest group of playhouse theatres and cinemas. Um, Mark, just to begin with, do city dwellers get the housing they deserve? Well, I think if we put it in the London context, um, the Joseph Roundtree claims that some one million 20 to 39-year-old economically active households are priced out of being able to get on the housing ladder and will never get to the top of a waiting list for any form of social housing, if indeed they aspire to it. I think from a Londoner's point of view, no. Thank you. Um, Dr. Michelle Badley is a writer and behavioural economist based at the UCL Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment. And Michelle specialises in the analysis of herding, social influence and behavioural bias including fascinating studies of the social and psychological factors underpinning housing booms, jury verdicts, and online fraud. Uh, She's also written about the neurobiology of global finance, um, basically and crudely how our brains balance greed against fear, and how being in a crowd can make rational people do dumb things. So, uh, Michelle, what is the one characteristic a city must have to be socially effective? Overall, I think sustainability is, I guess, the buzzword there, and not just um, economic sustainability, environmental, ecological sustainability, but also social sustainability. A lot of my work focuses on those social influences and and getting different social groups within the city to bond together rather than to be opposed. Okay, thank you. Um, Leo Johnson is a writer, a broadcaster, a visiting fellow at the Smith School of Enterprise and Environment at Oxford University and the co-founder of the strategy advisory firm Sustainable Finance, now part of PwC. In Leo's latest book, um, On the City of the Future, he warns of the dystopia of what he calls Petropolis, um, decaying cities founded on the car and carbon energy, and the emerging dystopia of Cyberbia, smart cities bristling with embedded sensors to track and constrain every aspect of the city dweller's life. 
It's a pretty gloomy book, Leo. What's the, um, what is the one thing that has to change now to avoid both of those two dystopias from happening? Can I first of all salute him, because he's actually read some of the book, which is a huge achievement. Nearly all of it. Right? Really. And it, the first two-thirds is really gloomy, because it does talk about these two cities, which are dystopian. Either we're locked into the old technologies of fossil fuel-driven mass production, and the future is Detroit, the future is New York after Sandy, is all the pathologies you're seeing of, of mass production at the end of its days. Or we take this new amazing set of technologies, ICT revolution, and with that, we bolt it on like we bolt it onto mass. We use it like Botox on the face of Joan Collins to sustain existing power structures with fracking, with God knows what financial products and hyper-accelerated trading, with technology for big data, and we don't do the thing that I think we've all come here for, which cities are amazing at doing, which is people. We don't give the power right. to people. And on that note, is it possible to get the lights on in the room so we can see the amazing and beautiful <laughs> people who are in this room? Nice. Get that? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Leah. We'll cover a bit more on that in a second. Um, the Right Honourable David Lammy MP uh, was elected as MP for Tottenham, uh, which is the constituency in which he was born 14 years ago, and served as Minister of State for Higher Education in the last Labour government. Uh, David is a leading figure within London Labour. And in his book on the 2011 riots, he writes passionately about the corrosive effect of what he calls a take-what-you-can-consumer culture, the negative <coughs> effects on boys of absent fathers, and the struggle of his constituents to attain the most basic of requirements, namely a decent home, <coughs> a decent job, and decent opportunities for their children. So, David, what is the one major policy change that you would mandate tomorrow, if you could, that would change London's lives for the better? One, um, I think the thing about cities is that it is really important that everyone in it believes that anything and everything is possible. That is what is great about living in a city. And I remember being on the 14th floor of Broadwater Farm Estate, and even though it was the 1970s, I still thought anything was possible. And to some extent, my life confirms that. My fear is that it is not possible on some of our huge tower block housing estates today for that to be the case. So the first thing I would do is blow them up and start again. I think people need a front door, a garden, a street. Excellent. Some food for thought there. Now, what we're going to do now, just very briefly, is hear from each of our panellists in turn. What are the kind of two or three elements of what matters in cities for them that needs to change, that needs to be nurtured, that needs to be killed off. And David's given an illustration there of one topic that's clearly dear to his heart. And we'll begin with Mark. Well, cities are by far the most environmentally sustainable places on Earth. Um, they are also the best places for us to recycle human capital and recycle financial capital. They're incredibly productive places. Uh, Friedrich Engels didn't get that wrong at all. Uh, they recycle human capital very well. So unless you can hold on to the young and make them want to stay in your city, you're doing something terribly wrong. And in that context, London, but not alone London, New York and all the big cities have got a big problem coming their way because clearly they're rendering it utterly uneconomic, unaffordable for the young to stay in these cities to get a foot on, on the housing ladders. 
Um, so making cities work for young professionals is crucial to their economic and their social uh, futures. Um, and in a sense, countries get the housing outputs that they deserve culturally. You know, the, the housing that they get is a reflection of the planning system that they've had. And in our country, we've had a planning system which has uh, really been the planning of theatre rather than prescription. It depends on the performance on the night as to whether you get your consent or not. There's nothing particularly prescriptive about it. I, I once had a conversation with uh, the chief executive of Airbus Industries, and I told him about the planning system in, 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 in the UK... And he said, okay, I want you to now listen to what that sounds like to me as somebody who's running Airbus Industries. So you're telling me that if I was Airbus Industries, I would have to accept a situation in which people came up to me and said, we can't tell you whether we want the airplane to have five seats or 500 seats. We're not entirely sure whether the runway is going to be 400 metres or 800 metres. And as to these fire retardant materials, well, we think they're kind of important at the moment, but that might change in the next five years. That's the way you're describing the British planning system. And it is an unholy mess in which long-term planning is almost impossible. And if you can't plan long-term for housing, and housing is clearly one of those activities, capital-intensive, but you have to plan very long-term, then you get the kind of mess that we're in today. Culturally, what we achieved was a polarised housing market, which over the last 50 years prioritised social housing for people in housing need, a very good thing. Every civil society should be able to say how much housing it uh, is going to set aside for that purpose, and then unbridled Victorian capitalism on the other side where people bored each other to tears over dinner parties about their housing equity. What we didn't do over that 50-year period is think about the stuff in the middle. And because we didn't think about the stuff in the middle, intermediate housing, how you got on the housing ladder, if you couldn't get on the housing ladder anymore, which is clearly what's happened in uh, the UK over the last 10 years, then you were pricing out a, 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 a large number of people from getting on the housing ladder, and that has long-term implications for London. The average tenure of a state secondary school teacher in London now is 18 months, and the number one reason cited for leaving their job is housing-related. Housing really matters. We need to change. There are some very important things that we have to do. It's not just for London. New York has to learn how to do this. Vancouver has to learn how to do this. Paris has to learn how to do this. The first thing is we must quantify and then use strategically, much more intelligently, the amount of public land that is available to us. If you look at the most functional planning economies in the world, the Swedes, the Dutch, the Japanese, they all know from year five onwards how much public land there is in their country. In Holland, it's 60%. When I asked the mayor of London how much public land there is in London, he couldn't give me an answer. I got some fumbled answer about how much land TfL owns, how much land the ambulances, but there's no comprehensive view about how much public land we own, and therefore we can't use it strategically. The Green Belt has to be rethought. It is a dysfunctional corset around a city that's clearly bulging at the edges, and we need to rethink it. We do need to go for high density. I don't agree with David about shearing down all these tower blocks. Um, we have to get... You don't live in one. <laughs> we'll, we'll come on to David. There, there are ones that I'd like to live in, there are ones <laughs> yeah. that I don't like to live in. Okay. But we, I, I think we do need to think about uh, uh, density and height uh, much more intelligently. Yeah. And then the last thing is we need to create uh, uh, an economy in which it's possible for medium-sized developers and builders to succeed. At the moment, the only people in the UK who can succeed <clears throat> in housing are either the absurdly large, because they can assume the inefficiencies of the planning system, or the very, very small for very much the same reason. Okay, thank you. Michelle. 
Um, so how did an economist land up in the Faculty of the Built Environment? Um, and when thinking about what I was going to say uh, at this session, I, I thought about all the cities that, that I love, some of the cities that don't work so well. My, my parents despair of me, because although they're great travellers, they love the country, and when I go to visit them, I get bored after two days, to be honest. Um, and so I'm a great lover of cities, and I've been thinking of a few cities that sort of fit into some of the, the points I've thought through. So in my quick sentence, it was about sustainability, and others, I'm sure, here are going to talk about what we said. We said something about economic sustainability already in terms of, of housing markets and access to housing. Ecological and environmental sustainability, whilst I won't say too much about this exactly now, because we've got others who are going to comment on that, uh, incredibly important. Some of you might realise that God is championing well-being. God being Gus O'Donnell has just released the well-being <laughs> report. Really very interesting reading. Absolutely mainstream economists um, talking about well-being as being the new measure of economic performance. So we're moving away from just simple GDP measures um, of well-being. And the environment is crucial in that. And some of the London universities are starting to work on eco-smart cities, which are all about us protecting the ecology of the city and, and the environmental sustainability of the city both ways to protect the environment as well as to give us a better quality of, of, of living. And they told me about something I hadn't heard of before called the nature deficit disorder. Some of you might have heard of this. This idea that if people are removed from their environment, if they're removed from nature and trees and animals and all that sort of stuff, then they, their mental well-being suffers. So it's great that economists are starting to think more about mental well-being alongside everything else. And so coming to what makes a sustainable city, focusing particularly on the sort of stuff I know about, I would say there are the three main things. We can understand a city as an organism, so the renewed interest in garden cities or whatever it c comes from that sort of perspective, I guess. So we envisage it as an organism of overlapping, overlapping systems and networks. And that, the obvious thing to say about that is, is it must be smart. Smart infrastructure, responsive to fluctuations in energy demand or whatever. And so there's a lot of emphasis, obviously, in a physical infrastructure in a city. But there's a load of other things going on there as well. So in terms of diversity and cohesion within the city... Um, most of my life I've lived in Cambridge and more recently moved to London and it's quite interesting to see how socially sustainable London is in places. So, for example, I was asking my niece and nephew, you know, do you feel safer in Cambridge or in London? They actually said London. And we live, we live 50 metres from the back of the Ellsbury Estate, close to the Haygate Estate, just off the Old Kent Road. And it's, it's a cohesive community, a great diversity of people and nationalities, and it's a brilliant place to live. Um, and so that diversity and cohesion. And just finally, um, it must be dynamic. And I don't mean just looking forward, but looking back as well, because some of the most wonderful cities in the, uh, in the world, including London, but Istanbul, Moscow, um, even Sydney compared to Brisbane, other places I've lived, um, the history, the sense of the past, meeting with the future and meeting with the present, and that's why London's such a wonderful city, because you've got all of history there. And so I think when we focus on cities and the future in tomorrow's society, we mustn't, mustn't forget where we come from. Thank you. Leo, so Petropolis, Siberia, and the alternative in two minutes. Okay, first problem is to solve the city, you've got to solve the outside of the city. So I just came back from Nairobi. You've got globally 200,000 people a day, which is three Manchesters a week, fleeing the countryside and a pattern of distressed migration to the cities. So the megacity is like this Titanic that is going down. Lagos, Kinshasa, Sao Paulo, Mumbai, you name it. The megacity is getting swamped. And if we're going to solve cities, we've got to make the countryside work. 
And of course, there are new technologies that are starting to do stuff around micro-irrigation, solar lights with SIM cards in it, Vodafone, by the way, actually working on that stuff. There's extraordinary stuff. If you follow Kentaro Toyama, technology is not the answer, it's the amplifier of intent. If we develop the intent to address the problems that the countryside faces, we've gone a long way towards addressing the problems of the global megacity. Okay, that's point one. Point two, what do we do with the cities themselves? I think there's extraordinary stuff starting to happen. I think you describe cities as sites of productivity. I think it could get much better than that. We've been living in what Vives, who's the mayor of habitation of Barcelona, refers to as the pito city, the product-in-trash-out city, where our job is basically to be a consumer. And where all the emphasis on technology, of course, is to accelerate the speed at which we consume and to do more of that. But you've got two revolutions that excite me, and they are the very things that were the two pillars of the Fordist city we have been living in. The first is, of course, in energy, where it's a shift slowly from fossil fuels towards renewables. You know, by 2030, 80% of the world's going to be living in places where renewables are below cost parity with fossil fuels. So it's an ineluctable trend. The second is in manufacturing, where, Martin, wherever you are, Chinese labor costs going up 15% in the last year, 33% in the last three years, the cost of domestic micro-manufacturing going down, down, down. What you're starting to see is the return of manufacturing, the return of making... What greater proof of this is there than the fact that that great firm, Pot Noodle, has just returned to the UK. What is the point? There is the possibility, and it's not just sexy 3D printing and God knows what, but computer-driven precision manufacturing is putting making back into the hands of people, where it's no longer this vision that we have expensive machines located in China and very cheap people pushing the buttons and broken jobless communities, but we've got the possibility of people actually making stuff again. And combine that with the removal of the car as this central alienating force in our lives, you've got this possibility of us actually being productive, connected to each other, and doing all the things that actually make cities beautiful places to be in. That's what excites me. Great. Thank you. David. Can I say that that really excited me as well? God bless you. <laughs> you, you should run for mayor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Very good. Well done. Um, I'm blown away. Look, Where to start? I think it comes back to this point that I think you want a city's population to believe that anything is possible. And I think you can go back 30, 40 years in that period after the war when everything was expanding and growing, much of the country was in rubble and things were happening. When you could be um, part of a working poor you could certainly be working class. You could be part of a suburban middle class aspiring. And you could work during the day. And in the evening, you could go to night school. And my mum went to night school and she did a Pittman's course in typing. Uh, she finished the course, um, bought a new wardrobe, and suddenly she was a secretarial assistant. Uh, and feeling very important and beginning to provide for our family. Find me a college in a major city, open after 7.30 in the evening, and I'll give you a prize. Mm -hmm. And it is part of a London, uh, and all of our major cities in fact, 
where we have seen our economies dominated solely by the service sector. And actually, when, when politicians use this phrase, or economists use this phrase, the service sector, and in London it's 88%, what they really mean is retail, mm -hmm. is shopping and consumption. So, if you are not in the finance sector, lucky enough to have one of those huge global jobs with big global salaries to go with it, then, or a professional, and there will be many in this room, and, you know, gone to a very good university and all the rest of it, you can write and all the rest of it, you've got a bit of money, you are trapped in other sectors of the economy, low-end, low jobs. That's why we're having this proxy discussion about what should the minimum wage be, what should the living wage be, when actually it's about what does the city do. And that's why I like the last point, because we do have to get some manufacturing, certainly advanced manufacturing, back into the city. And that's what other major cities, like New York, are in fact doing. If we are built solely on consumption, solely on Westfield, we are fucked. That's the bottom line. Uh, we will not be the city that we need to be going forward, and huge tracts of the population will be left out. So let's have some night schools. Let's have some colleges. Let's have the ability to aspire again. Let's not just think the whole argument is about living, uh, a living wage. And let's deal with our housing crisis. Rents eight times the average salary. Uh, buying a house now in London, I think it's almost 400,000 is the average price you're looking for. 70% of first-time buyers using the bank of mum and dad. That is an unsustainable uh, challenge. And of course... I'm largely preoccupied with London, but if we were having this debate about Newcastle or Hull or Middlesbrough or Hartlepool, huge tracts of our country where industry left some time ago and the new labour experiment of replacing it with public services clearly in 2014 has been shown not to have worked, we have some big challenges here in the UK. Okay. Thank you, David. Um, I don't think the pot noodles are going to save us, is the short version, but uh, it's a nice thought. <laughs> I didn't pick up that message at all, but I think he should stand for mayor. No. Yeah, no. yeah, I agree We'll run together! Uh, so, there you go. Except that's your first, first scoop, Julia. Oh well done. Um, now, I know there are some strong views on this topic in the room, because I spoke to some of you on the bus, so over to all of you, please. Any questions, any thoughts, any observations? Harvey. Can you wait for the microphone? Julia tells me off unless there's a microphone, I'm afraid to use the microphone. <laughs> I have a question. Um, I'm Harvey Goldsmith, and um, actually, strangely enough, working on a conference next year about the future of cities. Um, all of you are referring to we. Who is we? Who are the people ultimately responsible for resolving the issues that you're putting on the table? Is it the local authority? Is it government? Is it private enterprise? Who is we? Because I've been hearing this for a long time now about we, but I don't actually know who we is or are. Let me just come to Mark quickly on that, and then back to um, and Leo and David. To Mark. Uh, what I find interesting is that the sophistication about the debate uh, uh, about cities has improved hugely in the last five to ten years. So the we today is very different from ten years ago. We now have a minister for cities in this country, which is pretty unique. A minister for cities who's not just thinking about the big cities, but thinking about how to connect the core cities to the big cities. And that's what HS2 is all about. We now have a mayor of London, and there's huge amounts of evidence that cities that do well are 
part of political economies where there's regional government sitting between national and local government holding the balance between these two often contradictory forces. So when we talk about we today, we're talking about a level of sophistication in places like London, in places like New York, which is completely off the chart compared to where it was five to ten years ago. Does HS2 connect cities or just export London house prices? To no, Manchester? HS2 does connect cities. And HS2 actually does a huge amount for Manchester Leeds and Birmingham Leeds. It's not just all the way down to London. Two central authorities that control the West End will not sit in a room together, let alone talk to each other. How does that work? Well, that, that, and, that, and, and the mayor's on the outside of it. I, I, I've gone public saying that 33 London authorities, it's like the Balkans out there, it's ridiculous. Uh, and I think we should have four to six at most super regions. By the way, if we had four to six super regions, each region would be as large as Paris in terms of numbers of people that it would be looking after. So, you know, when we go from 33 to four to six, which I'm sure will happen in David's lifetime as Mayor of London, um, it's, it's, it's actually already quite a revolution. Let me move this beyond London, because this is a bigger issue. Yeah, I'd love to move it beyond London. Go on. Um, and, okay, so Venice, as we know, this week has voted to secede from Italy. This trend of cities deciding that they are the unit of account is clearly on the rise. But the question is, who within cities? So here in front is a book by the great writer Benjamin Barber, which is called, to my great dismay, when, you know, if mayors rule the world. Um, <laughs> I personally believe, he's a fantastic guy, Eileen, you know you're here, but I believe this is wrong. I believe that it's not going to be charismatic mega mayors who rule the world. The we is going to be people. And it's going to be a much lower level of democracy. And if you look at what's going on in Porto Alegre in Brazil, in Hamburg, which has now just been exported to New York with Cuomo adopting it, you've got technology being used again to create not smart cities, which is a term I loathe, but smart citizens who are empowered, for example, with participatory budgeting to decide, okay, here's 100,000 bucks. What do we want to do with it? The local municipality was saying we didn't want security cameras, actually, and we wanted playgrounds. Actually, we do want to put security cameras down in the underpass. And there's a local democratic system that's rewiring the broken governance of cities, which is still top-down and trying to create the bottom-up city that's adaptive to the people's needs. But it depends on them being at the driving seat. Uh, any other questions from the floor, just so we're waiting? And, and David, please come in. Just, if you could put your hand up, we'll come to you in a second. David. Two things that occur to me. The first thing, of course, is Sir Humphrey, the Mandarin, Whitehall, the civil servant. This is a tier of our country, very powerful, very important, where the exciting, fantastic, forward-thinking ideas cannot be found. Mm. And uh, it is hugely important that central government moves away from trying to run and organise cities. And we are still one of the most centralised countries in I'd Europe. I'd say Douglas Carr's uh, agreeing uh, yeah, with you. The, yeah, the writers I know, agreeing I, with I'm you. I'm yeah. We're nodding all the time. It's very worrying. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 the second thing is this system of local government based on the idea that, you, that this audience finishes work at five o'clock in the evening and then pitches up to the town hall 
to take part in local democracy, goes to those town hall meetings, <laughs> meets with... You must be mad. We're all watching Jon Snow on Channel 4 News, just. So there are, there are processes and systems that are fundamentally broken, it seems mm. to me. And part of that must be proper devolution downwards and proper power down to ordinary people. Or, or the whole thing will start to sort of shudder and halt. Do people yeah. agree with that? Is that in the mood of the room? I think so. No. No. You don't well, like that. Do you well, want Sir Humphrey doing well, it? Well, hang on. Hang on. Let me say this. Yeah, hi. Um, hi. Hang on, the question here. Yeah, hi. Um, so, Sunder Katwala from, from British mm. Future. Um, the reason it, it feels a bit too gloomy to me, this the discussion, is that, I mean, surely, you know, if you're not Detroit, which is a disaster, one of the big questions about the last 25, 30 years for a lot of cities is what went right in terms of cities. Lots of problems arising from success, such as the affordability of the young. And isn't the really big question, say, in the UK, what would, what would now grow the city economies and the cities that aren't London, what would do most to do that? But yeah. hasn't, I mean, cities have come back a long way from where we were. Let me put that to Michelle, who's yeah. the economist on the, on the panel. So, Michelle. No, I think that's a, 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 very, good, a very good point, because it's important not to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater and to recognise the sort of things that London does do very well. For example, um, uh, you know, some of the things are just about the institution and structure, that you have a, a centre of government alongside a financial centre at the same time gives it a certain political and economic strength, but perhaps that's sort of secondary to the thing that I think really works for London, as far as I can gather, is the diversity. And so the current political debate, so focused on a sort of anti-immigration line, you come to London, you see that, that diversity really working extremely well. Obviously, you know, in, in economic theory and social, social capital theory, the, you know, there's ideas about how social groups can bond together but you can have different groups in conflict with, with one another. Say, for example, gang culture would be an example of that. But if you can harness the best of the diversity um, and, and promote that, huh? I think it's extremely important. Yeah, I, I, I disagree with Leo. I, 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 there is no evidence whatsoever that infrastructure on any scale, housing on any scale, gets built through grassroots up referendum-like politics. It's just barking. Um, what, 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 what you need is to find a middle way between the two. I you do need, to say that. You I do need, to you say do need sorry, way. but you didn't say it earlier. You do need five to seven year plans. I know it's distasteful. You do need targeting. I know it's distasteful. And then you need all that good stuff that electronics and popular... Yeah, but you're, great, saying, but you're saying prescription from the centre. But, but you do need, you need a, a right. certain you amount need of prescription. Plan. You need a, a balance between national, regional and local governments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, in fact, can I try to see, because I also agree with you, Anne-Marie Slaughter, the whole government as platform stuff, can we settle on that, that the real city that will thrive will be where the state catalyzes the creativity and provides the platform yes. through Definitely. which the citizens can co-create, and of course there's an infrastructure. Definitely. Do people agree with that? Yeah. Oh, I think okay, so. Get really folks, we just, uh, let me just take a question. Uh, there's a lady at the back. We're going to struggle to squeeze you all in. So can I have quick questions, quick answers, please? Go ahead. Okay, I think we should get down to something constructive here. If cities are going to thrive, we're going to have to have some decent housing. Yep. And I'd like to hear from the panel how they think this is going to happen. David thinks that we should bring down the tower blocks is not pilot is not um, sort of that way of the best way to house most people, which is no. I think possibly what Mark no, thinks. No, so no. I'd like to, I'd no. lo so no. you think everybody no. should have so a garden. How is that going to happen within yeah. cities as they're currently configured? So ten okay. seconds from David, ten seconds from Mark on that one, then we'll take another question, please. The look, there's political consensus that we need to build more housing. 
what there isn't consensus on is where and how. The first thing is, I'm afraid everyone cannot be housed in London. I'm, it's wonderful that George Osborne has decided that Ebbsfleet is to be the new, uh, new town. But after the war, we built 11 new towns. With starting populations of 60,000, Ebbsfleet is to have 15. So the vision has got to step up greatly. That does mean that we need to revisit Greenbelt and Greenfield land. Fine. Um, just not, yep. We also will need some rent control. And this is not the sort of 1970s bureaucratic nightmare. Angela Merkel ran on this in the German election. It's linking rents properly to inflation, being fair about what rent should go up for, so that young people who can't get a foot on the ladder can at least rent properly here in London. Michelle, just briefly. Um, uh, it's a, a very important point to take into account what real people want from their housing. So this launch of the wellbeing report on Friday, there was a community representative there who was talking about old people who'd been in, moved into these really fancy, expensive homes in, in a city London, but, you know, miles from shops. And so, you know, housing that doesn't suit their purpose. So we need to, to understand better what, the, what people really want. rather and than There, I'm afraid, I know there are questions still waiting, but we are timed out again, guys. I do sorry, but you... You can go and find each other. I knew this one would like we could go on for several hours. You know where you all live now for the next three days. Um, I'd just like to say thank you, first of all, to Alfredo um, Carlo in the corner. We can't actually see what he's writing, but I assume he's making sense of the madness. So thank you, Alfredo. Uh, thank you to all of you for your contributions, and also thank you, please, to our panel, Mark Blessing, Michelle Badley, Leo Johnson, David Lamy. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening.